Heavenly Father, such a theme of these songs of, of surrendering to you, putting our trust in you, putting our faith in you. And Father, that is the confidence that we have. is not in us, but in you. And Father, you don't ask us to give in for your strength carries us forward, but you ask us to give up, to give to you our problems, to lay them at the foot of the cross, to lay them at the foot of your throne. Father, during that first song, like Pastor Kirk, I, I went straight to the book of Joshua. And this encouragement, when your people were getting ready to enter the promised land that you gave them, you said to them, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Be strong and courageous and you continue. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For I, your Lord, go with you wherever you go. Father, in that promise, we have life, we have freedom, we have security. And therefore, we can give up all of our problems, all of our challenges of this world. We give them over to you. So, Father, as we continue through our study in the book of Jonah, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears again and again to the type of God and Father that you are to us, that you are trustworthy and you are mighty to save. And we can put all of our faith, we can surrender every aspect of our life to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, good morning, Trinity. How is everybody today? Well, good. All right, fantastic. Um, I'm going to wait for my pulpit. I always, not my pulpit, Pastor Kirk's pulpit. Jesus' pulpit, that's right, accurately said. Thank you, JJ. No lie, when I, when, when I first had the opportunity to preach here, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was during COVID when everyone was gone and we were all online and I like had these images in my head of like that, that at, like that pulpit pulpit, the one that's like you can't see through and wraps around being wheeled out here. And I was like, oh, perfect, like kind of hidden. And if anything goes bad, I can like duck behind it if people start throwing things. Like this will be great. And then this thing comes out. I'm like, what is this? What is this thing? What am I supposed to do with this? Anyway, well, we continue today uh, in our series through the Old Testament book of Jonah. We are in week three of our series titled A Story of God's relentless grace. If you're visiting with us for the first or second time, welcome. Last week, Pastor Kirk remarked that if he were to make a movie out of chapters 1 and 2 of Jonah, the opening scene would be of Jonah inside the belly of the great fish, sinking into the depths, and then do one of those sort of fade to black two days earlier to backtrack all the way to like, how did this happen? How did this guy get here? And if that's chapters one and two, I'd like us to picture opening a movie of Jonah with chapter three. The scene opens with a camera 
panning down this beautiful beach on the Mediterranean Sea, aqua blue water, the waves gently lapping the shore, maybe a bird chirping in the background, that soft sound of the warm ocean breeze, a hammock gently swaying between two palm trees, and then into the camera's view comes this shipwrecked prophet of God, covered in fish vomit, washed up on the beach. Like, if there was ever an opening scene that demanded an explanation, that's got to be it, right? So let's quickly see how we got here. And if you want to join along in the Pewback Bible in front of you, we're on page 753, 754. And if you do not have a Bible, that is our gift to you. So in chapter 1, God calls on his prophet Jonah to get up, to leave Israel and travel to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, and preach against its wickedness. Jonah says, thanks, but no thanks, travels down to a port city of Joppa, boards a boat, and literally tries to travel in the exact opposite direction that God called him. But even though Jonah seems to be done with God, God is not done with Jonah. And he sends a violent storm that threatens to break up the ship and sink everything. And the storm is only calmed when the sailors of that boat throw Jonah into the water. But God still isn't done with Jonah. He appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. And it is from inside the belly of the fish that Jonah finally cries out to God and repents. And chapter 2 ends with Jonah saying, What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And God gives Jonah a chance to make good on that vow. He commands the fish to deposit Jonah back onto the beach. And we'll pick it up there in chapter 3, verse 1. Again, this is page 754. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the kings and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we come to your word, there are, there are books, there are stories, 
that we have heard some of us since childhood. And they can be so familiar to us that we can miss, we can forget, we can overlook, we can blow past all that you would have for us in your word. Father, not just what you're saying to us, but how you want to transform us and what you want to say through us. So, Father, I pray that you open our ears, open our eyes today to what you would have to say. Would your Holy Spirit be the preacher here today? Anything that is not of you that comes out of my mouth, strike it down. Father, we need to hear from you today. So teach us, guide us, love us in a way that only you can, that moves us to align with your mission here on earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, sweetheart. All right, there is, there is so much here in chapter 3. To preach on this is like kind of shopping when you're hungry, but there were three distinct themes that God showed me this week that I, that I want to share with you guys. Number one, God's grace is bigger than my failure. Number two, God's plan is better than my self-preservation. And number three, God's love is purer than my judgment. Point number one, God's grace is bigger than my failure. Now remember, mercy is not getting what you deserve. If you're doing 100 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone and you pull over and you get a ticket and you just get a warning, that is mercy. You didn't get what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Now let's look again at verse number one with that in mind. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Let's put on our legal hats for a moment here and let's dive into the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. You don't have to turn there. This is the fifth book of the Bible, written by Moses and continues to narrate the journey of the Israelites from Egypt to the Promised Land. And during that period in the wilderness, Moses receives and delivers to the Israelites the law of God, how they are to live, rules and regulations, how they are to worship, civil laws. And in that, we read the following as it pertains to to God's prophets like Jonah, people chosen by God to deliver his message to his people. And this is what Moses says in, in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. He says, says to the Israelites, listen, when you go into the promised land, the nations that you're going to dispossess, the nations that are already there that you're going to kick out, they practice sorcery and divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, and you must listen to him. For this is what you asked of God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, lest we die. The Lord said to me, Moses says, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, he will tell them everything I command. I myself will call to account 
anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Verse 20, but a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of any other God, must be put to death. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but if God's law says to put to death any prophet that goes rogue and speaks words that are not God's words, I have to imagine in God's mind there's some kind of penalty for the opposite. We know there are sins of commission, sins that we commit, things you do and I do that we shouldn't. And we also know that there are sins of omission, things we omit, things that we should do that we do not. And so what is the penalty for Jonah's omission here? Death for the one who speaks what God didn't command, but what for the one who doesn't speak what God does command? Jonah willfully, directly, deliberately, and completely defied God's command. God said go, he said no. God pursues Jonah through a storm that puts the entire boat at risk of perishing into the raging sea, and Jonah's answer for that is not to jump into the water of his own accord, sacrifice himself for others. No, he makes the sailors throw him in. As a passenger, he's a total liability, his sin directly impacting the lives of others, and as a prophet, he's an utter failure. But as easy as that is to recognize in the life of Jonah, let me tell you, if you stacked up all the times that I deliberately and completely defied God's commands, I would put Jonah to shame. Things that I have done, things that I have said, Things that go through my mind that horrify me. All the things I should have done but didn't. Called that person. Extended an olive branch. Given forgiveness. Shared my faith. I stand here as a man that has failed God time and time again. And the only thing that separates me from Jonah is the fact that all of my failures are not written down in a book for everyone to read. And every once in a while, my past whispers to me, you've let God down before, and you'll do it again. God isn't going to use you. He can't even trust you. Sit down, be quiet, forget about trying to advance the kingdom, or better your marriage, or be a more gentle father, or be a better friend, reach your neighbors, grow closer to Christ. No, 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 no. You just sit there, and the best you're going to do is to not screw up what God's doing through others. Now, I don't know what Jonah deserved, but I can tell you for sure what he didn't deserve. And I can tell you for sure what I don't deserve, and that is this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Brothers and sisters, our God, our Father, is a Father of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. If we fail Him five times, He calls us back six because His grace is bigger than our failures. God left your sins at the cross. Have you? Have I?
when your past failures knock you down, get up, look up, and give thanks and praise to the God who never gives up. His grace is bigger than all of our failures. And not only His grace bigger than our failures, but point number two, God's plan is better than our self-preservation. Look again at verses two through nine. God says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into it, proclaiming 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed on God. A fast was proclaimed from the greatest to the least. When Jonah's warning reached the king, he rose, took off his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust, issued this proclamation by the decree of the king and nobles. No one, people, animals, herd or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgent, urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now, not to backtrack, but recognizing and receiving God's grace should always move us to at least two things. Repentance and obedience. And that's what we get here in the life of Jonah. Jonah repents while he's in the fish turns from his sin, turns back to the Lord, and then we see the corresponding obedience to the word of the Lord in verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, you guys know me, I couldn't help myself, and so I did a bunch of research and investigated this fish that got appointed to swallow Jonah. And what I found is that fish live in water. Now we know that this body of water is the Mediterranean Sea. Joppa is a port on the Mediterranean Sea. The closest shoreline to Nineveh is 220 miles west of Joppa. I'm sorry, 220 miles west. Joppa, where Jonah boarded the boat in the first place, is 550 miles from Nineveh. Which means that unless this fish had the projectile accuracy and range of a Patriot missile, Jonah has a very, very long walk to Nineveh. But let's say that in an incredible act of God's grace, the fish deposited Jonah onto dry land 220 miles away from Nineveh, as close as he could possibly be. That's the orange star on the map. That is the closest shoreline to Nineveh. That location also happens to be exactly 220 miles away from Jonah's hometown. That orange star is 220 miles from Nineveh in red and 220 miles from Gath Heifer, Jonah's hometown. If Jonah's deposited anywhere else on that shoreline, by definition, Geographically, he is automatically closer to home than he is to Nineveh. Which means that even after Jonah's decision to receive God's grace, he still had to make the decision to walk in God's will. 
Now, this is not the main reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Pastor Matt's going to dig into that next week. But Jonah must have been thinking about his own self-preservation as each step he took towards Nineveh was literally one step further from the comfort and safety of home. God's plan or Jonah's self-preservation. See, at that time, Assyria was the global superpower. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And the Assyrians were hated. To understand the hatred of the Assyrians, we have to understand the depth of their wickedness. The Assyrians were a ruthless, violent nation. When they conquered your nation, if they killed you, you were lucky because they were known as the lords of torture. As part of their psychological warfare, they would maim their victims, not kill them, so they would be a living example of their wrath. Hollywood, in its darkest and wildest dreams, I promise you, cannot conceive of the brutality of the Assyrians. It was a sport to them. And the more brutal they were, the more feared they became. Guess who invented crucifixion? Now this is a picture of Death Valley in California. So hot and so parched, nothing good can grow. Assyria was a moral and spiritual death valley. You don't overthrow Nineveh. Nineveh overthrows you. And God calls Jonah to go straight into the capital city and tell them, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now God's calling of Jonah here in verse 2 doesn't make us all that uncomfortable only because we can read verses 5 through 10. But Jonah had no such knowledge. Comfort, security, peace, friends, family, 220 miles to the south. Or a 220-mile death march straight ahead. But God's plan is greater than our self-preservation. Have you ever been in a circumstance where God was calling you into the unknown and it could cost you? My grandfather was one of my best friends. He was a great man. He was born in 1921. He saw the Great Depression, lived through that. Two world wars, lived through that. He was a strong man, a tough man. Straight Italian, old school. And he and my grandmother built a lake house up in Maine that my cousins and I, my family, would spend the entire summer at. I felt like I grew up at the lake, and I have such amazing memories with family up there. But like I said, my grandfather was tough, and if you crossed him, it got ugly fast. And with certain things, his temper was like a hair trigger, and as he got older, it got harder and harder to tell what those things were. But man, did you know when you, when you pulled that trigger. Now, I had the blessing of baptizing my older cousin 
up at that lake one day a few years ago. It was an unbelievable special moment. Right after I baptized him, he turned around, he baptized his wife right in the lake, right on the beach. It was amazing. Beautiful summer day, not a cloud in the sky. My cousin and I are standing there after the, we, after the baptisms, standing there in the lake, and got to talking. And he said, you know, who knows how many more years Grampy has. And at this point, my grandfather, he had to have been pushing 95 years old. Sound mind and body, 95 years old. And I am like the master of asking the obvious question. And so I did. Vance, it's my older cousin, you think he knows Jesus? Not sure, my cousin said, but we have to preach the gospel to him. And by we, I mean you. <laughs> and I knew it. I knew I had to do like Conviction immediately. I knew I was standing there. I knew I had to do it. I knew that I had to be the one to walk out of the water, up on the beach, past the grass, past the house, around the house, to the back porch where my grandfather was sitting in the sun, and I had to explain the gospel to him. But before I took one step, fear set in. Not a little fear, a lot of fear. How am I even going to bring this up? What if he flips out? What if this is a trigger? What if this drives irreparable damage, an irreparable wedge between you two? Something I had literally seen before between my grandfather and other family members. I mean, this is my grandfather. I love this man. I look up to this man. And I'm not kidding. I was his favorite. That's truth. What if he never speaks to me again? What if he dies with our relationship never being repaired? And it was if God himself said to me, you're worried if he dies separated from you? What if he dies separated from me? And so I prayed, God, I know this is what you want, so you better get to that porch before I do. <laughs> so I walk up to the porch, I sat down, I, I can still remember walking, it's like 10 steps to the porch, probably took me a half hour. And before I could even open my mouth, my grandfather says this, I didn't know Vance was a Christian. You know, I, I doubt I'll ever understand how Jesus could have died for somebody like me. I believe it, but I'll never understand it. My grandfather started preaching the gospel to me. It was all I could do to not throw myself off the porch and just repent in sackcloth and ashes. My fear was driven by my own self-preservation. I had taken my eyes off of eternity. And we, when we let our fear override our faith, we forget the promises of God and focus more on what, what we have to lose than what the lost have to gain. God's plan is better than even our own self-preservation. And I had the great pleasure of officiating my grandfather's funeral last August. And I did so knowing that he was resting in the arms of Jesus. 
This book of Jonah comes to us from the pen of Jonah, through the eyes of Jonah. But think of this from the Ninevites' perspective. We were doomed to destruction, rightly deserving the wrath of God for our wickedness, dead in our sins and trespasses, but God sent to us a messenger who entered into our situation. And yes, he smelled like low tide, but he brought to us the words of life. There is an entire generation of Ninevites right now in heaven worshiping Jesus because just like God went before me to that porch, God went before Jonah to Nineveh. God goes before us. He put his Holy Spirit within us. And we must not shrink back from missions in fear, but move forward in faith, knowing that our own lives are not worth protecting at the expense of a gospel that is most certainly worth proclaiming. God's grace is bigger than our failures. His plan is better than our self-preservation. And lastly, His love is purer than our judgment. Good verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. Now, (laughs) Boy, if ever a preacher can take comfort in something in Scripture, Jonah's sermon to Nineveh is further proof that God's Word never returns void. It always has accomplished what he wants. What seems like the lamest sermon ever is perhaps the most faithful and effective. Jonah preaches exactly what God tells him, and he lets God do the rest. When God saw what they did, that the Ninevites turned from their evil ways, he relented. Think of the death. Think of the torment. Think of the torture. Think of the destruction. Where is the retribution? There's a cost here. Who's going to pay for what they've done? See, that's how I think of it. Because if I'm honest... In the flesh, if you wrong me at, let's say, a level of six, I'll forgive you when you pay it back to a level of, say, eight or nine. Because when you wrong me, I'm the judge. I get to be the judge. And you don't just get to say you're sorry. What level of good did God wait to see until he forgave the Ninevites for their evil? None. Scripture records exactly none. From a behavioral standpoint, all they did was stop doing evil. And this is why God's love is so much more pure than my judgment. Because the best my judgment can do is to use someone's behavior to poorly interpret the motivations of their heart. But God's pure love uses the motives of the heart to perfectly judge behavior. And we have to understand this as it relates to our relationships with one another and extending forgiveness to one another. 
We cannot play fast and loose when we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Do you really want God to forgive you as you forgive others? I don't. I need God to forgive me as he forgives and replace my judgment with his perfect love so that I can forgive as he does. But dare I say that we cannot only understand God's perfect love as it relates to our relationship with others, but we must understand it as it relates to our relationship with him. Not only extending forgiveness to others, but first receiving it from him. Many of us, myself included, sometimes believe that we need to work endlessly into the future to pay for the sins of our past. If I sin on Monday, but I go to a Bible study on Tuesday, it's all good. No! Trying to work the rest of your life to pay for your sins is the gospel according to Satan. Yes, God so loved the world, or God so loved Nineveh that he sent Jonah, but God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Jesus was perfectly obedient. Jonah ran from the call of God. Jonah went from Israel to Nineveh, but it was Jesus who came from heaven to earth. Jesus didn't receive a word from God. He is the word of God. Jonah preached the wrath of God, but it was Jesus who took the wrath of God. God's plan of redemption for you and for me was made perfect by his grace and his love and he brought it to us with three nails, two pieces of wood, one glorious savor and every single sin. And it was upon the cross at Calvary that Jesus was engulfed by that storm of God's wrath, the wrath that you and I deserved. And just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, Jesus was in the grave for three days, but the grave did about as well as the fish. And on the third day, Jesus burst forth claiming victory over Satan, sin, and death. Jonah was the reluctant prophet. Jesus is the willing Savior. And when you put your faith and trust in Him, God's grace overshadows your failures. God's plan overcomes your fear. And God's love overwhelms your heart. And I'll close with this. Earlier I made a comparison between Nineveh and Death Valley. Death Valley being a place of desolation and Nineveh being a place of moral and spiritual desolation. And I know so many of you, I have prayed with so many of you that have shed tears and prayed fervently for salvation in your family for your children, your parents, in your neighborhood, for our nation. And it seems like you've been casting the seeds of the gospel into Death Valley. Well, a rare but beautiful thing happened in Death Valley back in 2005 when that area received six times the normal rainfall it does. And out of that hardened, dry, cracked, desolate ground, 
millions of beautiful wildflowers sprang up. Now, I don't know much, but I do know that rainfall does not contain flower seed. Which can only mean that while we only saw death and desolation, right under the surface, the whole time, were seeds waiting for rain. And what the book of Jonah teaches us is that we must never stop praying and we cannot stop proclaiming the glorious news of Jesus even in the driest of lands. And when God pours out his grace upon those planted gospel seeds, just like Nineveh, Death Valley comes to life for salvation will indeed come from the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, this story, this chapter in Jonah contains so much for us in our personal lives, lives as, as you show us time and time again that you are a God that pursues us, that does not leave us and does not forsake us. Father, you are faithful even when we are not. Father, your, your grace, it's bigger than our failures. It's bigger than our past. So, Father, I pray that for each of us, we spend so much less time looking backwards and so much more time looking forwards. And Father, we know that your plan, we read it over and over and over again in your word. We see it in our own lives that your plan of redemption and salvation is so much better than our own self-preservation. And that you will and you do call us to use everything you've given us. You call us out of our lives of comfort and safety and security to walk in your will, to bring your word to the lost. And Father, we know that your love, your love is what drove you to send Jesus here. It's what drove him to step out of heaven and to climb up on that cross and to take all of my sins, past, present, and future. And so God, I pray today that each one of us, by the power of your spirit within us, surrenders today and receives your grace surrenders to your plan and call on our lives, whatever that may be, wherever we may have to go and whatever we may have to do. And that we do so knowing that your love is so pure and that our lives here are but a whisper when we think about the eternity that we will spend with one another and with Jesus. It's in his name we thank you and we pray. Amen.